If you have your Bibles in a moment, we'll be reading our evening passage from John's Gospel, chapter 6. That will be found on page 891 in your pew Bibles. But before we do that, let us call upon our God to be the one who truly teaches us as we prepare to hear this word. Would you join me in prayer? Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we again come into your presence this evening thanking you. Thank you, God, for things that we take for granted. Your mercy, your grace, your truth, your word. And Father, we've been reminded again and again through song how you have blessed us eternally through your Son. And Father, our cry is what we have just heard. We want you to create in us a clean heart, to renew a right spirit. Oh, Father, we are men and women tonight who too often have unclean hearts and unsettled spirits within us. We have been so consumed by the things of this world, the cares of this world, that our practice has been to be more worried about ourselves and this world than resting in you. Oh God, tonight, would your spirit come upon us in such a way we truly know what it means to have a spirit that is pure and renewed, not by ourselves, but by the work of Jesus. Apply to us by your tender Holy Spirit. And our God, we ask that as we read your word, as we hear your word expounded and proclaimed to us, would you create in us a hungry heart to hear your word, to live your word, to witness the power of that word to others in this world. Oh God, do that work among us. Even now we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We'll be beginning our passage at chapter 6, verse 22, reading through verse 34. Hear now the word of the Lord. On the next day, the crowd that remained on the, other, on the other side of the sea saw that there had been only one boat there and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but that his disciples had gone away alone. Other boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the boats and went to Capernaum seeking Jesus. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not labor for the food that perishes but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. Then they said to him, What must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. So they said to him, Then what sign do you do you do that we may see you and believe? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate manna in the wilderness, 
As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus then said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. This is the word of the Lord. So why did you come to church this evening? All of us have different reasons for being here. For some of you, it was a last-minute decision. You weren't going to come, and then the opportunity kicked in. Or perhaps you just felt guilty, or you knew that I would notice you weren't here. And you were terrified. But why did you come? What did you come looking for? That really is the question, isn't it, that's, that you have to ask when you read this story, the story we've just read together here in John chapter 6. What were these people looking for? One of the things that, the, the key words, I think, in the section is the word seeking. People came seeking him. They came seeking Jesus. And Jesus uh, responds to that by saying to them, you are not seeking me. So there's a bit of confusion. There's what the people thought they were doing, and there's what Jesus knew they were doing. Well, let's back up a minute and put it in its context. Let me remind you of what's been happening in the scenario so far. Jesus has fed 5,000 people, at least 5,000 men, plus women and children, perhaps as many as 20,000 people. He has fed them by creating food for them in a great act in what is probably the greatest miracle that Jesus performed while he was here. He did all that publicly. It was a matter of public record. People were there. They'd been there, done that. They wore the t-shirt. I ate the bread that Jesus made, that kind of thing. I like Jesus bread more than anything else. You can get Ezekiel bread. They had Jesus bread. That was really a satisfying thing for them to happen. So it was a matter of public record. People were there. Everybody knew somebody in, the, in a small population area like that. Everybody knew somebody who was there that day and saw it happen and tasted the bread and the fish that Jesus made. It was an astounding thing. People were abuzz speaking about it, talking about it. Some of them wanted to make him a king. Others thought he was Moses, reincarnate. Uh, there, there was all kinds of conversation about Jesus because of the miracle that he performed. And then his disciples got in a boat and they crossed the lake. And you know the story. Jesus had been walking on the water. And now what happens next is that Jesus, who had walked on the water, is now on the crest of a wave uh, of another kind. He is on the crest of a wave of popularity. And the crowds are looking for him. And we discover the crowds consist of a, a number of different kinds of people. There are believers, no doubt, among the people who are looking for Jesus but many of them, if not most of them, in fact, are not believers at all. They'd seen the miracle of the loaves and the fishes, and they were, quite frankly, wanting to have, in their mind perhaps, uh, a, a meal for life, really. They, they looked on Jesus as their ticket to a meal for life, and they came looking for him, and they found him. 
And I want you to notice, really, as, as you look at this paragraph, look how Jesus greets those who come seeking for him. They come to him with this question. How did you get here? They've been observant. They, they notice, you see, they, there they were on the far side of the lake in a mountainous region, not an inhabited area. They were there among the mountains, and they'd notice because it was all open. There were no trees to obscure the vision. They had a good view of the lake, of Galilee at the foot of the mountain. They knew that there was only one boat there. They knew that Jesus had not taken that boat. He had gone to the mountain to pray. He had left the crowd, gone off on his own. The disciples had got into the boat. They'd noticed that. They'd noticed what had happened, and they'd registered that. And so they were thinking that Jesus was still there, so they'd hung around there. Maybe he'll come down the mountain, and he'll feed us breakfast tomorrow morning. But tomorrow morning came, and there's no Jesus. And then some people in boats come across the lake to their side to find out what's going on and whether any of them need a lift back to the other side. And, and they say to him, did you know that Jesus is over there? And they're thinking, what? Jesus was here last night. How did he get across the lake? And so now they're coming looking for Jesus. And they say, how did you get here? And I wish he'd answered their question. I walked. But he doesn't answer their question. You notice he doesn't give in to, to, to giving to their speculation. In fact, what he says to them is, is really intended to put them off. You think, this is not, not seeker-friendly stuff, Jesus. These people have come seeking you. You're meant to be seeker-sensitive, seeker-friendly. Isn't that the big buzz phrase? At least it was in, in the 1990s in America because it was exported to Britain at seeker-sensitive and seeker-friendly and so on. And we did our best to do seeker-sensitive and seeker-friendly things. Well, Jesus is not very seeker-sensitive here. In fact, what he says to them is this, you are not seeking me, at least not genuinely. You haven't seen the truth about me. All you've seen are the miracles that I performed and, and the excitement that you feel looking for me, this, this intensity of emotion and excitement, this buzz that's going around about me, in fact, there is nothing spiritual about this buzz at all. Yes, there's excitement. Yes, there's interest. Yes, you've come ostensibly looking for me, but there is nothing spiritual in your search for me. Jesus reads the heart. He sees through all the stuff that we have in the, in the forefront of our lives behind which the real us hides. He sees through all that stuff. Jesus reads the heart. He knows people. John has already pointed this out about Jesus. He knew what is in the hearts of men and women. He knows our hearts. He knows you. He sees behind the hypocrisy, the very often the play acting that we do in order to hide who we really are as people. He sees behind all of that. He sees your heart. He knows why you're here. He knows why you're here. He knows your motives. He knows your expectations. He knows all the things that he needs to know about you. These people, these people then, and some people perhaps here this evening, are fascinated with Jesus, but that's as far as it goes. With these people, the problem was that their expectation of him was delimited by a defective Christology. Just to throw in a theological word there. 
because you were getting bored. A theological word just to, to highlight the fact that their view of who Jesus is was defective. They thought he was a prophet like Moses. Moses had fed the children of Israel in the desert for 40 years. They thought if Jesus is a prophet like Moses, maybe Jesus will feed us in the desert for 40 years. That's what they were thinking. They were thinking purely at a level of the flesh and the earth. Some people come looking for Jesus today. You, you can see this in the masses of people that, that, that go to some churches in America today. And what, what is being peddled is a Jesus that meets your need, that solves your problem a Jesus who is there to be your buddy and your friend. A Jesus who will get you out of trouble, who will make you healthy, wealthy, and wise. You make you prosperous, who will get you things. That kind of Jesus. The kind of Joel Osteen. Jesus with a smiley face and his hair perfectly quaffed. And he is on the up and up. And it's all very positive. And the Christian life is all very positive. And isn't it all so wonderful? And Jesus can make life wonderful. You can have your best life now. But here's Jesus. He says there's something fundamentally wrong with people who come looking to me for things. What's fundamentally wrong is their view of who Jesus is. So let Let's look at how Jesus secondly gets them thinking. He gets them thinking. They show that, that they've only a natural view of Jesus because they've come looking for purely natural bread. That, that's, that's, his assign, that's his assessment. I, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. That's why you came. You, you didn't see this as a sign pointing to something significant about me, you saw this as fundamentally you got something to eat. You're operating at a different level. You're operating at a natural, carnal, earthly level. That's where you are, he says. You're not looking beyond the miracle and seeing it as a sign pointing to the identity, my identity, as the Son of God. And what Jesus then teaches, this, teaches them is this. That although they got their lunch yesterday for nothing, there is no such thing as a free lunch. Not from Jesus. He has something that he wants you to learn. Something he wants to give you. He wants to give you something better than that free lunch that they'd had the day before. He says to them this. Do not labor for the food that perishes. Don't give yourself simply in life to getting the perishables of life. By the way, he's not discouraging hard work. He's not discouraging you going out and earning money to buy the food that you eat. He's not discouraging that kind of hard labor in hard places in order to survive and to feed yourself and feed your, fra your family. He's not, he's not doing that. What he's saying is, don't let that be the horizon within which you operate. Don't let that be the be-all and end-all of your life. Don't labor for food that perishes. Don't put all the eggs of your life into the basket of looking for food that perishes, the things of this world that are passing away. Don't do that. 
What you need is food that endures to eternal life. What you need is something that satisfies forever. Something that reaches the parts nothing else is going to reach. Something that will give you eternal life. That's what you should be looking for. That's what you should be coming to me for, he says. Labor for the food that endures to eternal life which the Son of Man will give to you. Here it is, either bread that perishes or eternal life that never perishes. Food that endures or abides to eternal life. Those are the odds. Those are the differences today. Earthly life, eternal life. You choose. Everybody in this room has to choose. Earthly life or eternal life. And he uses the language they would understand. He says work, labor, labor for food that endures to eternal life. If you're preoccupied with material things and material benefits and material blessings, you're in danger of losing out on eternal life. You come to Jesus wanting something other than that, you will not get the something other than eternal life. You come looking for eternal life and all the other stuff is added as well. But eternal life is the key. And why must you do that? Well, he tells them. He tells them that they must uh, labor for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you, verse 27, because for on him God the Father has set his seal. Back then, business people, when they were executing legal documents, regularly used seals to attest to the quality of the items or the articles involved. Rulers gave seals of office to their highest officials who acted on their behalf. And when anyone said, you know, who are you talking for? He, they would say, I'm talking for the king, Luke. And he would produce the seals of office. In the olden days, when uh, outlaws roamed the English forests like Robin Hood and others, uh, there would be a wanted poster put out. And it would say so many pounds sterling... Uh, if, you, if you capture Robin Hood, and there would be the king's seal backing up what he was saying. Jesus says, my father has placed his seal on me. My father has marked me out as being the Messiah, attesting me by these mighty signs that I've been performing and God's seal of approval, His seal of authenticity, is always accurate, always trustworthy. He says, look at what I've done. Think for a moment about what I did there. He, he'll go on to tease this out in the rest of the chapter. We won't get there this evening. But, but he says, think about what I did there. What did I do in that mountain? I did not do what Moses did. I didn't simply pray and God sent down food. I took the food and multiplied it. I created it for you. I did the God job for you on that mountain. Think about it. God has put his mark upon me, the mark of God upon him. He has authorized his only son, the son of man, to be the mediator, the giver of eternal life to men and women. Not only that, God sent him. He sent him. And Jesus, having been sent, would give his flesh for the life of the world, he says later on in verse 51. He would rise again from the dead in John chapter 10, verse 18. 
He would give life to others. God put his mark of authority on the Son as the Son of Man. The divine seal, the mark of God's authority on him in order that he might give eternal life to people. Listen to what we find earlier on in chapter 5 verse 19. Whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom He will. The Father has given all judgment to the Son. As the Father has life in Himself, so He has granted the Son to have life in Himself. And He has given Him authority to execute judgment because He is the Son of Man. You see, Jesus says, the seal of God, these signs I have performed, these public actions that I have performed, before the eyes of witnesses, these signs are authenticating, authorizing my position as the Son of Man who gives eternal life to whoever He will. What does it take? What does it take to have eternal life? They said to Him, what must we be doing to have eternal life? Isn't that a remarkable thing? When, when people... When people start to think or act, ask about the Christian faith or about what Jesus has to give, they invariably, the default setting is to say, what have we got to do to get? What do we have to do to get? Doing, doing, doing. That, that's, that's our default setting. Our default setting is to think that somehow or other there is some work we can perform that earns the right to eternal life. Salvation by works is a kind of human reaction to anything that God has promised to do. Well, Jesus defines the issue and he says, there's nothing for you to do. Jesus answered them, this is the work of God. You've asked me, what work can God, will, does God require? Well, this is, what, this is what God requires. That you believe in him whom he has sent. That's it. Believe in him whom he has sent. In other words, the work is not a work. The work is a work done by someone else. You believe it. You receive it. You take it. You believe in him whom he has sent. This is the kind of work that pleases God. This salvation, this eternal life, is the gift of God's grace. It is God's generosity towards us. It's by grace you're saved through faith. And that faith is not of yourself. It is the gift of God. This is the work that God requires that you believe. I remember, I remember as a boy uh, in my early teens kind of coming to grips with, with these doctrines, these teachings, and, and coming to grips with this great verse in, in Ephesians, by grace you are saved through faith. And faith is not of yourself. It is the gift of God. Not even faith. I can't even boast of my faith. I can't screw up my courage, as it were, and exercise faith of my own volition. That is the gift of God. It is all of God. This is the work of God that you believe in the one He has sent. The one that God has sent to us. The one that God has sent to us precisely because He's been in the courts of heaven. Precisely because from all eternity, as John has taught in chapter 1, He has been face to face with the Father from all eternity. He knows whereof He speaks. 
There is nothing the Father knows the Son doesn't know. And from all eternity, He has known the mind of God and the heart of God, and His pulse has beat. If God has a pulse, His pulse has beat with the pulse of God. And He has sent into the world so that people might be saved through faith. And what Jesus is saying is, the only thing that counts is the faith you have in me. That's all that Jesus, that all that God requires of you is faith in Christ. Faith on its own doesn't work. To have a faith, people regularly say this, in, in, certainly in, in the United Kingdom, people will often say, so-and-so has a faith. Isn't that great? They have a faith. I don't know what they mean by that. We all have faith. I mean, you believe I'm going to finish this sermon in about 20 minutes' time or... 10 minutes time, you're praying, it's 10 minutes time. Uh, you, you, you believe that the seat you're sitting on is going to hold you up. We've all got a faith. We've been exercising it all day long. Having a faith does not get you into heaven. Jesus makes it absolutely clear. The only work of God is to believe in the one he has sent. The only faith God recognizes is faith in Jesus as the Son of God. That's the only faith that counts. And what they didn't realize is here these people are standing in front of Jesus. And they're saying, we want bread. Bread to eat. We want food for life. We want you to do what Moses did. Feed us for a generation here in the desert. We're looking to you, Jesus, to give us something. And there, what's happening is they're standing in front of the Son of God. They're standing in front of the one who is the very instrument of creation by whom all things were made in heaven and on earth. They're standing in front of the one who has been the object of the attention and affection and adoration of angels and archangels and cherubim and seraphim from all eternity. They are standing in front of the one who will raise the dead on the last day. They're standing in front of the altogether lovely one. They're standing in front of the infinitely valuable, infinitely beautiful, infinitely wonderful Lord Jesus Christ, who can change their lives entirely and offers them eternal life forever. And they're saying, can we have more of the bread? (laughs) I mean... You see, that's where we are this evening, confronted by this wonderful Lord Jesus. And He defines what it is to have Him. It is to believe, which means to receive Him. Well, you'd think He'd be getting through to them by this stage. But it gets worse. Jesus next confronts their unbelief. So, having heard all this, so what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? Duh. I mean, what work do you perform? This is them asking him. It's almost incredible. Have they been there? Have they been listening? Have they been, have they been observing? They've been fed the day before in this most remarkable manner. People are talking about it. People are speculating that Jesus is the Messiah or that he's the prophet. And and maybe he is a king and they should make him a king. 
and, and the sign has been so massive and objective. It's been prompting all this speculation. And people were there and they've had it and they've tasted it. And in spite of that, what are they asking? What sign will you give, what sign will you give us to, to prove that, you, you're, that you're, what you, who you say you are? I mean, what work are you going to do that's going to really wow us? That's going to really grab our, our attention? That's going to really thrill us? To what, what are you going to do for us? Can you believe it? That's how deep-seated unbelief is. What they're really looking for is a bit of a show, really. It's obvious that they don't really want to believe in Jesus as he's presented himself to them. They just want more food. That's the bottom line. They want more food. And you know it still obtains today that, that you can do for the world, and we want to do for the world, as much as we can, giving generously, giving out handouts to the world. But let me just tell you this, where Jesus Christ's church has been generous and shown kindness to people, they come back for more. And they take the handouts. But very often they will not take Jesus. That was a lesson that the disciples taught in Acts chapter 3 with the man that sat at the beautiful gate of the temple. Silver and gold have we none, but such as we have we give to you. What the man wanted was silver and gold. He wanted some pennies thrown into his, his bag as these people who were going to the temple passed by. They said to him, anybody can do that for you. We have something infinitely greater to do for you. And Jesus is saying that here to these people. And, and they, they play their card. They quote the Bible, or they give kind of a quotation from the Bible. It's not an exact quotation. This tells you where they're really, where they're really going with things. Our fathers ate manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. That's really what they had in mind. The spiritual ignorance and blindness of a natural man is so obvious there. Then Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you bread from heaven, but my Father. And now my Father gives you the true bread, the true bread from heaven. He uses the strongest language to make his point. He's saying to them, you're going on about Moses. You're going on about Moses feeding them in the desert for 40 years. You're preoccupied with that idea. You're coming to me because you think that would be great if Jesus fed us today like he did yesterday and tomorrow like he did yesterday and do that for the next 40 years. That's what you have in your mind. You're not getting beyond that. You're not getting beyond that in your thinking. But I want you to remember, Jesus says, that it was God who was the ultimate supplier of the manna. God sent the manna. And then using the present tense, he draws them out, out to this very moment and he says to them, My Father gives you the true bread from heaven. The true bread from heaven is not the manna that pointed to it, 
but is the gift that is now standing in front of them, there, in their presence. And unless they hadn't got it, he spells it out for them. For the bread of heaven is he who has come down from heaven and gives life to the world. The true bread from heaven, the true satisfaction that you need, the true sustenance that you need day to day is the life of God that comes to you, has come down from heaven, and has come to give life to the world. And there's a movement in the flow of the interaction with Jesus. But the one who provides the bread from heaven is the one who is the bread from heaven. He's come to be the one not only for Jews but for the world. He's come to be the one true and final one who narrates God to us, the revealer who tells us heavenly things because he's been there, done that, and come here to tell us the heavenly things. The obedient son who is nothing less than the word of God saying to these people, you live in greater days than Moses' day. You think Moses was the great star in your national history, but you're living in days that exceed Moses by infinity. Because the true bread of heaven has come to bring eternal life to those who believe in him. And that's really where we're going to stop this evening. Whether you're a believer or not, here's the secret of ultimate satisfaction and eternal life. It's to believe in the one that God has sent, Jesus Christ, the one that God has sealed by the signs that he performed, the one that God raised from the dead, the one that God has highly exalted, to whom he has given a name above every other name, that the name of Jesus every knee should bow and every tongue confess that he is Lord. The question I want to ask you this evening is this. Are you trusting? Trusting in the sense of resting. Resting in the sense of leaning all your weight on Jesus. When I was a little boy, and we were in some dangerous place, perhaps we'd been climbing a mountain and there was a ridge and we were near the edge of it, and my dad would carry me, and I would be frightened. He would say to me, lean all the way in, son. Lean all the way in. And that's what the Lord Jesus wants you to do. Are you struggling? Lean all the way in. Trust in him. Lean on him. Believe in him. And have eternal life. Let's pray. Father, we ask that this evening as we have been reflecting on our Lord's life and understanding that he knows what we came for, we pray that we would leave with the eternal life about which he speaks. And we have to unpack that in further times together. We pray that something of the reality of what we mean by receiving it, by receiving him, 
by trusting in him, by leaning all our weight into him. May be our experience this evening, we pray in his strong name. Amen.